So here we are on this last evening before the last full day of practice. And um, what I'm going to offer or share with you this evening is some thoughts and observations um, in relationship to mudita or sympathetic joy, which I know we've been already off and on working with a little bit. And the Brahma Viharas, I'm, I'm going to context it in a little bit in terms of all of the Brahma Viharas, but the Brahma Viharas are one of my most favorite parts and aspects of practice. I totally um, feel empowered by that practice. And I, for me, really view this balance of wisdom practice and heart practice as a way to have an integrated practice, right? So the development of uh, mind, body, heart. So um, when I travel to teach, I uh, have like a traveling altar with me that I put up. It's, it's my way of establishing home wherever I go. So I have an altar in my room down the hill and I have a travel size Kuan Yin. She's very beautiful and a Buddha in a snow globe with uh, winter snow coming down on him and other kinds of little things. And um, at Christmas, my grandniece, who is six years old, um, gave me this little, it's like a little leopard, like a little baby leopard. And she gave it to me of her own volition, like her mother was like, why do you want to give her that? What do you, there's a whole story about her giving, and, and I know she gave it to me because she knows that we're both bling girls, you know, so we're the bling and the leopard. <laughs> but there was something about, um, her name is Sabrina, there's something about the joy that Sabrina had when she gave me this little leopard that had me bring it and say, I'm going to make this a part of my traveling altar. And we were just sitting in the room waiting to come in here, and Pam said, does, does she have a name? I was like, no, I, I, you know, it hadn't occurred to me. And she said, well, how about Miss Mudita? <laughs> so christened Miss Mudita here tonight, and forevermore she shall be known. So, the Brahma Viharas, um, in their perfection, they are sublime and boundless. You know, perhaps you've been getting a little bit of a taste of that. And to be dwelt in, as we speak of dwelling in a place, in peace. Less has been said or written of Mudita than of the other three of these four characteristics. Probably because somewhat clumsy translation and also how it would incline us to have to look at one of the more underdeveloped aspects in Western culture, heart qualities. While loving kindness and compassion are objective, reaching out to all sentient beings, mudita and equanimity are subjective or personal in their application. The third of the four Brahma Vihara is the practice of mudita, cultivating gladness or joy, sometimes translated as sympathetic joy, appreciative joy, 
altruistic joy. So in some ways, believe it or not, Eugene and I are more alike than you would think. And I too love going to the dictionary um, to come away with a sense of how language and words are being used in our culture, in our languaging. It doesn't mean it's correct, it's just the way we use it. So sympathetic, pleasant or agreeable, showing approval of or favor toward an ideal or action. Appreciative, feeling or showing gratitude or pleasure. Altruistic, showing a disinterested and selfless concern for others, unselfish. These four heart practices all work together to strengthen and support and protect each other so that together they help the heart and the mind, the chitta, come into a state of profound balance and grace. Metta sets the foundation from which the other three qualities emerge. When metta turns towards difficulty, challenge, suffering, it flowers naturally as compassion. And when metta turns towards what is going well or towards success, it flowers as mudita or joy. We can get a sense that there is a relationship between compassion and joy. Joy can protect our compassion practice from falling into grief or despair. And compassion protects our mudita practice from falling into elation or ungrounded exuberance. We can see them as different flavors of love and they work together to balance each other out. There's a descriptive of these four qualities that arises out of the forest refuge in uh, Barry, part of IMS, that Carolyn Jones and Paul Burroughs created, and I, I love this, Pat. I love reading this. It just speaks to my heart and mind. Meta kindness is the love that connects. It is the antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna or compassion, brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka or equanimity brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. 
So we can see how all of these qualities relate to each other and come full circle, creating a spiraling force field of wholesome states of heart and mind. When we take a look at even the darkest difficulties we can encounter, we can find some spark of joy or appreciation or gratitude in knowing that the difficulty itself is giving us some opportunity to strengthen our capacity to be with difficulty. I, I hope I don't offend anybody and it's not funny, but it is funny. Uh, so my husband had a stroke six months ago. And fortunately, it was a mild stroke. Um, and he doesn't have a lot of residual um, outcome from the stroke, other than being a bit slowed down. But in the crisis of the stroke, and I'd never, I was with him when he had it, and of course never had observed um, something like that, and there was all this kerfuffle about it. And uh, about a month ago, he said, uh, so when I had the stroke, were you afraid I was going to die? And I was like, nah, I was afraid you were going to be paralyzed. And we both, he was like, paralyzed? And you weren't afraid I was going to die? <laughs> yeah. That's the balanced mind, maybe. <laughs> A big part of the Buddha Dhamma is the awareness and understanding of the pairs of opposites in the training in order to move beyond them. The Buddha's method of mental training and development was to teach by first defining unwholesome or unskillful thoughts, words, and deeds or practices which characterize many of our human proclivities. Then, to put forward their opposite consideration of a wholesome or skillful nature as an achievement to be sought after for the eventual transformation or letting go of them both. The trouble with so many of the unwise is the desire to abandon the tools, the practice, the techniques before reaching wisdom and freedom that tendency, that human tendency to want to bypass before gaining competency and skill in working with clinging aversion and delusion, before seeing things as they are, just like this. The Buddha's method of expounding the negative and the positive, the passive and the dynamic aspects of behavior in both abstract and concrete terms is to create awareness of what is to be cultivated and nurtured. This is why it's so necessary that we should see and recognize our failings, see and recognize our failings and shortcomings, our wrong views, our wrong perceptions, if we are to be released and to transform them. So it's a necessary part of the practice. Cannot skip over that. To realize our imperfections is the beginning of wisdom, the first light to shine on the darkness of our ignorance. 
while we are blissfully unaware of unwholesome states of mind within ourselves, such states will continue to flourish and their roots will dig deeper into our being. Just like our relationships with others, the unknown, non-skillful means will be repeated and unconsciously and unrecognized, building up a cumulative unhappy future for us under the law of cause and effect. These four desirable characteristics are the antidotes to the poisons of their opposite imperfections. And here is where the recognition of their opposites is useful. We never tire of asserting the interdependence of every aspect of the Buddha Dhamma, no matter which particular facet is being discussed. I think I referred to that the other night when I was talking about the hindrances, how one of my early teachers, Gina Sharp, always used to speak about the Dhamma and its holographic nature. So wherever you've been entering in these uh, eight days, seven days that we've been together, will take you far. It is stated that ignorance is a failure of perception. And it is true that greed and hatred do arise through the non-seeing and non-understanding or misperception of their source. Subsequently, the result is that basically, craving born of ignorance is the culprit and that the purpose of the Buddha Dhamma is to eliminate craving. I think we've been up to a bit of that over our time together. It is a craving that gives rise to jealousy, envy, covetousness, avarice, and greed in all of its manifestations. Here it is that mudita, when practiced and developed, becomes a sublime and boundless state of mind to be dwelt in as a corrective characteristic for their removal. There is a Chinese proverb that says, if we keep a green bough alive in our hearts, the singing bird will come. Christina Feldman says, the cultivation of joy reveals to us how we have internalized the ideology of insufficiency and lack. It offers deep insight into the roots of the craving that can govern our lives and the ways we can learn moment by moment to return to a genuine sense of inner sufficiency, contentment, appreciation, and peace can be the home of our hearts. Joy teaches us to release the comparing, judging mind that repeatedly highlights and deepens the reification of self and other. The understanding born of cultivating of joy releases the mind from the contracted prisons of want and separation. When the energetic qualities of metta and karuna are turned towards happiness 
or the good things in life. What can arise is a happiness much, much greater than our own personal happiness. This appreciative joy or sympathetic joy that the Buddha called mudita, the mind delivered of gladness. Because the force of happiness actually can liberate us. That is so oppositional to the United States. So we're swimming upstream. You know, this is a practice that one needs courage and fortitude to maintain in these environments and places that we find ourselves in this good old U.S. of A. The joy that is larger than our own, seeing how all beings are seeking happiness. Joy needs space and room to emerge, and nature is a great ally in teaching us the simplicity of gladness. In those moments when joy eludes us and seems far away from us, we can go to a river or a tree or a park or even in the midst of a city, turn our eyes to the sky and simply stop, look, listen, and breathe. Then comes the appreciation. When happiness arises for others, we automatically feel joy at their joy, happiness at their happiness. It is the happiness of seeing the 10,000 joys in our own lives that see this possibility. Udita invites us to look at the non-problem rather than the problems in our life. So I, a few of you may have heard this. I know Devin's heard it. Um, year before last, I did a retreat called the Lost Coast Retreat. And it's not too far from, it's in Northern California, but you have to walk in eight miles to the retreat center um, on the shore. So I did it with my girlfriend. My girlfriend and I did it. Um, she's a little bit older than me. She's in her, she'll be turning 70 this year. And we were gonna like challenge age <laughs> together and do this retreat. So we're both, she lives in Connecticut, I'm in the city in New York and New Jersey, and we're training. We're training on concrete, level ground, below sea level. <laughs> so weeks and weeks of training, so, oh, I got this. I can do six miles without even cracking a sweat. I should be able to do eight miles. So we traveled from New Jersey, got here, did all the pre-stuff, and it was the day of the retreat. Mind you, my there was doubt, there was anxiety, there was all this stuff about uh, whether I was going to do it, but I had trained on the concrete. <laughs> so I was all pumped up, and I was ready, and I really felt hopeful. <laughs> I really felt hopeful. <laughs> and there was about, uh, I think there was about 20 of us, maybe 20 to 24, and... Um, my girlfriend and I and two other people were bringing it. We were the oldest folks on the, on the uh, trek. And it wasn't even the first mile and a half in, and it hit me like a brick wall. I'm not going to be able to 
you know, and the mind started working. And um, May, my girlfriend, um, she was quite supportive, really had to talk me down off the cliff. She was able to do it just enough that I was ever able to keep going. And then at about the second mile, <laughs> it occurred to me like, now's the choice point. I either have to choose and forward hoe we go, or I got to give it up and take the plane. So not wanting to disappoint May and the forming song of that was happening, I said, okay, I'll give it a go. And I was basically, I think, the last person the whole trip. And the thing about being the last person is the majority of the people arrive to the resting stops and get to sit down. And then when you get there, they get off <laughs> and it's time to go. So I did this eight-mile walk without any rest. <laughs> Um, and um, the two teachers were uh, Susie Harrington, who's one of, uh, is one of my colleagues. We were trained together. She's out of Utah. And Aya Ananda Bodhi, who's one of the nuns that actually lives not too far from here. They were the two teachers. And they would come and talk to me. Like, really, the community and the sangha really supported me. So about, I think it was about four or five hours in, we're almost at the end. And Susie runs back to where I am. She said, okay, there's only two more miles to go. You know, we're really... I'm like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> And the thing is, you know, walking on, walking on packed sand is one thing, but th even the people that were seasoned hikers said this was one of the most difficult walks they'd ever done because the sand was constantly shifting and changing. It wasn't packed sand. So we got to the... the, the Susie came back to... People are in front of me, and I see this, like, cliff in front of me. And I see people going up the cliff. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So I get to the cliff, and I just, I, I lost it. I, I have nothing left. And um, Susie's partner, her husband, was at the top, was reaching down for me. And he said, grab my hand. We can do it. I can pull you up. I said, are you sure this is a big round body? Are you sure you can pull me out? He's like, yeah, I got you. And then Aya Ananda Bodhi comes behind me. I have one step up and she says, I'm going to put my hand on your butt and I'm going to push in her robes. And, you know, <laughs> through the effort of Aya Ananda Bodhi and Susie's partner and myself, we were able to hoist me over this five-foot cliff, and I was able to complete the walk. So I'm sure that gave lots of mudita opportunity for anybody that saw that. <laughs> Looking at the non-problem rather than the problem. This can be really challenging given the strong conditions in our culture towards being focused on the problems or what is broken or wrong about something. This is part of our journey assisted by our practice to recondition the heart and incline it towards freedom. Understanding that mudita can be more difficult to cultivate even than metta and karuna. 
Unlike a state of mere excitement or giddiness, the quality of sympathetic joy ignites a challenge, ignites a challenge for us to examine our assumptions about aloneness, loss, and happiness, and illuminates another possibility. The far enemy of mudita is envy, the inability to endure the success, prosperity, or happiness of others. The experience of envy only functions to produce more and more dissatisfaction with our own condition and to make us miserable and suffer. Envy can devour us. We lose the ability to be centered within our own lives and instead are perpetually out of balance as we lean into the lives of others, regretting their happiness, real or imagined. Envy is the offspring of the comparing mind. What feeds the comparing mind and the energy of envy is the practice of conceit the practice of selfing or identifying or becoming and feeling that everything revolves around ourself or at least should resolve around it. The logical thought behind envy is that anyone who can do better than oneself is one's enemy. The Buddha said, in a battle, the winners and the losers are both lost. Mudita, however, is the opposite of comparing and competition. In our competitive culture, we cannot see the true nature of Mudita because we are so ingrained with thinking ourselves as separate entities. We become primarily concerned with our own survival. The practice of joy often can bring up feelings of not deserving happiness, low self-esteem. When we cannot experience joy, then how can anyone else experience it without bringing up envy and comparison? So that was the far enemy, envy. The near enemy of mudita is exuberance or exhilaration, which superficially resembles joy, but which is oppositional to it, and is described as a grasping for pleasant experience out of a sense of insufficiency or lack. Not only to compassion, but also to joy for others. Open your heart. Christina Feldman. Your life will gain in joy by sharing the happiness of others as if it was ours. Did you never observe how in a moment of happiness a person's features change and become bright with joy? Seeing a lot of that in the room, even if it's not sustained. Brightness, joy. Did you never notice how joy rouses us to noble aspirations and deeds, exceeding normal capacity? 
It is in our power to increase such experience of sympathetic joy by producing happiness in others, by bringing them joy and solace. Let us teach real joy. Many have unlearned it. Life, though full of woe, holds also sources of happiness and joy unknown to most. Let us teach people to seek and to find real joy within themselves and to rejoice with the joy of others. And the way we teach is to cultivate that within ourselves. Sympathetic joy means a sublime nobility of heart and intellect which knows, understands, and is ready to help. to show to the world the path leading to the end of suffering, the path pointed out, trodden, and realized to perfection by him, the exalted one, the Buddha. A poem by Rumi. Today, like any other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Brother David Steindl Rost, a Catholic Benedictine monk and scholar who spent a great deal of time in Christian Buddhist interfaith dialogue has explained. It is not happiness that makes us grateful. It is gratefulness that makes us happy. Every moment is a gift. There is no certainty that you will have another moment with all the opportunity that is contained now. The gift within every gift is the opportunity it offers us. Most often, it is the opportunity to enjoy it. But sometimes, a difficult gift is given to us, and that can be an opportunity to rise to the challenge. That's from this book, The Book of Joy, which is conversations between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. I'm going to read you a little story here. A little story about joy and gratitude. Anthony Ray Hinton spent 30 years on death row for a crime he did not commit. He was working in a locked factory at the time of the crime that he was being accused of. When he was arrested in the state of Alabama in the United States, he was told by the police officers that he would be going to jail because he was black. He spent 30 years in a five-by-seven-foot cell in solitary confinement, allowed out only one hour a day. During his time on death row, Hinton became a counselor and a friend not only to the other inmates, 54 of whom were put to death, but to the death row guards, many of whom begged Hinton's attorneys to get him out. 
When a unanimous Supreme Court ruling ordered his release, he was finally able to walk free. One does not know the value of freedom until one has it taken away, he said. People run out of the rain. I run into the rain. How can anything that falls from heaven not be precious? Having missed the rain for so many years, I am so grateful for every drop, just to feel it on my face. When Hinton was interviewed on the American television show 60 Minutes, the interviewer asked whether he was angry at those who had put him in jail. He responded that he had forgot he had forgiven all the people who had sent him to jail. The interviewer incredulously asked, but they took 30 years of your life. How can you not be angry? Hinton responded, if I'm angry and unforgiving, they will have taken the rest of my life. Unforgiveness robs us of our ability to enjoy and appreciate our life because we are trapped in a past filled with anger and bitterness. Forgiveness allows us to move beyond the past and appreciate the present, including the drops of rain falling on our face. Whatever life gives to you, Brother Stindo Rost explains, you can respond with joy. Joy is the happiness that does not depend on what happens. It is the grateful response to the opportunity that life offers you at this moment. Hinton is a powerful example of the ability to respond with joy despite the most horrendous circumstances. As we were driving in a taxi in New York, he told me, the world didn't give you your joy and the world can't take it away. You can let people come into your life and destroy it, but I refused to let anyone take my joy. I get up in the morning and I don't need anyone to make me laugh. I'm going to laugh on my own because I have been blessed to see another day. And when you are blessed to see another day, that should automatically give you joy. I don't walk around saying, man, I ain't got a dollar in my pocket. I don't care about having a dollar in my pocket. What I care about is that I've been blessed to see the sunrise. Do you know how many people had money but didn't get up this morning? So which is better, to have a billion dollars and not wake up or to be broke and wake up? I'll take being broke and waking up any day of the week. I was just the happiest I'd ever been. With $3.50, I said, you know, my mom never raised us to get out there and make as much money as we can. My mom told us about true happiness. She told us that when you are happy, then when folks hang around you, they become happy. I just look at all the people who have so much, but they are not happy. Yes, I did 30 long years, day for day, in a five by seven, and you have got some people that have never been to prison, never spent one day or one hour or one minute, but they are not happy. I ask myself, why is that? I can't tell you why they are not happy, but I can tell you that I'm happy because I choose to be happy.
Joy is natural to an open heart. We do not have unwise understanding that is disloyal to the suffering of the world to honor the happiness we have been given. So we can be happy and joyful and that does not dishonor the suffering. Joy gladdens the heart. We can be joyful for people we love, for moments of goodness, for sunlight and trees, for breath. As the joy grows, there comes a happiness without cause, a desire to rejoice in being alive. When we take delight in another's happiness, when we genuinely rejoice at their prosperity, success, good fortune, we can then abide in mudita. So some of the impediments to mudita, judgment, comparing, prejudice, discriminating, demeaning, envy, avarice, selfishness, boredom, all rooted in the forces of aversion and attachment. Allies of mudita, or qualities that support mudita. Rapture. Our capacity to take active delight in things. Gratitude. Brings delight and blessings. Metta. Mudita strengthens metta. As mudita grows, we come to understand that the happiness of others is our happiness. Sympathetic joy allows us to open further and further with loving kindness so that we can eventually really do want other people to be happy. Compassion. As Mudita reminds us of joy when we are lost in sorrow, compassion reminds us of suffering when we are lost in denial. Compassion guards Mudita and Mudita guards compassion. Together, the two in their complementary ways keep us from building barriers we hide behind and which confine ourselves so that we only experience a small sliver of life. If envy or jealousy is strong, we can turn the mind to the feeling of mudita, sympathetic joy. We must understand we have an inner remote control with an ability to change channels. Says the master, for one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This, verily, is the end of suffering.
That's from the Udana. So, I figure since it's kind of like still Happy New Year time, and I wanted to offer something that could bring a smile, I'm going to say a little bit about stardust. The cosmos is within us. We are made of star stuff. We are a way for the universe to know itself. Carl Sagan. Song of the Star. I am nothing but oxygen and hydrogen. A luminous sphere of plasma held together by helium and gravity. And like a balloon, I float on Earth waiting to be released back into the sky, waiting to go back in the reverse direction from which I came, traveling through a warm tunnel of light and out into a dark, cold abyss where I will explode into a thousand pieces. I shall leave behind my body. Just like air abandons the skin of a shattered balloon. And the magnetic dust that carries my heart and spirit will lift us back to congregate and shine with the stars. Home again in the fluorescent kingdom of the constellations, I will once again be called by my soul's true name and my heart it will flicker again with every memory from its many lifetimes and with every wish made by a child. That's by Susie Cassim, called Rise Up and Salute the Sun. So we are all made of stardust. Sounds like a line from a poem, but there is some solid science behind this statement. Almost every element on earth was formed at the heart of a star. And bear with me, because I know there are many scientists in the room today. So if I get a fact off, let me know. Next time you're out gazing at stars twinkling in the night sky, spare a thought for the tumultuous reactions they play host to. It's easy to forget that stars owe their light to the energy released by nuclear fusion reactions at their core. These are the very same reactions which created chemical elements like carbon or iron, the building blocks which make up the world we live in. After the Big Bang, tiny particles bound together to form hydrogen and helium. As time went on, young stars formed when clouds of gas and dust gathered under the effect of gravity heating up as they became denser. At the star's cores, bathed in temperatures of over 10 million degrees centigrade, hydrogen and then helium nuclei fused to form heavier elements, a reaction known as nucleosynthesis. This reaction continues in stars today as lighter elements are converted into heavier ones. 
relatively young stars like our sun convert hydrogen to produce helium, just like the first stars of our universe. Once they run out of hydrogen, they begin to transform helium into beryllium and carbon. As these heavier nuclei are produced, they too are burnt inside stars to synthesize heavier and heavier elements. Different sized stars play host to different fusion reactions, eventually forming oxygen to iron. During a supernova, when a massive star explodes at the end of its life, the resulting high-energy environment enables the creation of some of the heaviest elements, including iron and nickel. The explosion also disperses the different elements across the universe, scattering the stardust, which now makes up planets, including Earth. The amazing thing is that every atom in our body comes from a star that exploded. And the atoms in our left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. We are all stardust. We couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for life weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars. And the only way they could get into our bodies is if those stars were kind enough to explode. The stars died so that we could be here today. So in ending, In ending, I'll just offer one last piece. Um, so from that same book of joy, which is the conversations between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. This is a list that they derived that are obstacles to joy. Fear, stress, anxiety, Frustration, anger, sadness, grief, despair, loneliness, envy, suffering, and adversity, illness, fear of death. Sounds like those have all been visiting us. The eight pillars of joy or support. Perspective, humility, humor, acceptance, forgiveness, gratitude, compassion, and generosity. Brother Steindl Rast explained, when you are grateful, you are not fearful. And when you are fearful, you are not violent. When you are grateful, you act out of a sense of enough and not out of a sense of scarcity. And you are willing to share if you are grateful, you are enjoying the differences between people and respectful to all people, 
a grateful world is a world of joyful people. Grateful people are joyful people. A grateful world is a happy world. Gratitude connects us all. Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for a moment. With gratitude, I remember the people, animals, plants, insects, creatures of the sky and sea, air and water, fire and earth, all whose joyful exertion blesses my life every day. With gratitude, I remember the care and labor of a thousand generations of elders and ancestors who came before me. I offer my gratitude for the safety and well-being I have been given. I offer my gratitude for the blessings of this earth I have been given. I offer my gratitude for the measure of health I have been given. I offer my gratitude for the family and friends I have been given. I offer my gratitude for the community I have been given. I offer my gratitude for the teachings and lessons I have been given. I offer my gratitude for the life I have been given. Just as we are grateful for our blessings, so too can we be grateful for the blessings of others. Time for walking, and we'll have our last scheduled sit at 9. And remember the stardust. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.